0: Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and moved closer toward the gospel by this week's message. So over the next four weeks, I am doing a series somewhat awkwardly called Life in Christ colon, Rhythms. <laughs> That's the best I could do. Uh, I thought about uh, rhythms of life in Christ, but it just, I don't know. St. Luke and I are going to prescribe to you four rhythms over the next four weeks of a vitalized spiritual life. Those rhythms are going to be this morning, robust worship. Next week, true formation, and then healthy community, and then redemptive mission. We're going to look like, what does it mean to be people that are in those rhythms? Today is going to be a bit strange because I'm going to do kind of two sermons within the sermon. The first is the introduction to the series, and the second is a closer look at the parable Cindy just read from Luke 18. By way of introduction to the series, two questions. First, I just want to share a little bit about how this came about, the series, and then second, a little bit about rhythms. So first, why this series? Uh, for some time, I've been in conversation with some of you, with some of the staff, with Bishop Kin, about the word vision. What does it mean to have a vision for the church's future? Now, On the one hand, I think vision is absolutely critical. We must have a true north to guide us. A compelling answer to the question, why do we exist and where are we going? That question, if we answer it well, can help us resist what Bishop Zavala said a few months ago, a maintenance mindset, and instead live in a missional mindset as a community. On the other hand, my own experience of the word vision, I have a little baggage around it. And part of that baggage is that my own life, maybe you can relate to this, my sense of the future has always been much more of a lamp with a few steps ahead at my feet than a floodlight going like way into the five-year future. I was once discussing this tension with our bishop, Bishop Ken. Hopefully you got a chance to hear from him or meet him last week. Um, and he gave me some language that really deeply resonated with me. He said, when I was a pastor at IC and people would ask me, what's the vision of your church? Vision, vision, vision. He would say, I would respond to be the church. And that's when I knew I loved my bishop. It, it resonated with me because I have become really disillusioned, and I've been a Christian for a long time, and I've been in Christian environments for a long time in a lot of different churches, and I've become kind of burnt out and disillusioned with just like clever slogans and marketing materials and expedient programs like more, better, faster, and kind of Mark Driscoll-esque delusions of grandeur, you know, like, we're going to take over the city for God, and... Um, My heart is drawn to the simple beauty of of everyday, ordinary life with Christ. That's that's why I'm an Anglican. Um, I was processing all this with a spiritual director who then offered me, I think, a a helpful reframe. He said, Jordan, to put put being before doing, which is what I'm saying, being God's people before doing stuff, to aim at everyday, ordinary faithfulness to Jesus, that is a vision. And I relented. Okay, you're right. That's the vision. Still, I do prefer the language of mission over vision because a a vision does aim at a really clear destination, which is good, nothing against that. But if we're saying as a community, and what I am saying is, is as a community, I think we want to emphasize being before doing, if that's integral to our life as a church, then the emphasis lies on the process, the process a little bit more than the destination. Not that destinations are bad, we'll get there. Okay, now, another development. That's kind of one category. I was taking all these thoughts and reflections and conversations into a website refresh that we did recently, and that proved to be a very helpful exercise because it forced me to take all these things swirling around and put them on paper for the world to see. Um, So just a concise summary of some of this stuff. So I came up with some language that I think honors Advent's history and ethos, while also making space for my own sense of at least what this year the Lord is kind of inviting us into Um, And here it is. You've heard it before. This is not new for some of you, but next slide. To be a people who receive and reorient everything around life in Christ. So, who receive life in Christ, and then who reorient everything around life in Christ. I want you to notice the first words are to be. It's part of what I just said. We'll get to this more next week. when We talked about Formation. But our mission begins with to be is because the, the basic call is actually to receive a gift that turns you into a child of God and a priest of God. It's to be. It's about your identity, and that's given to you. That is the first and primary call of you, of you, for your life It's to be his people. This begin, we don't begin with doing or grasping or earning, but by receiving life in Christ. That is our true north. True north is life in Christ, and it is a gift that we receive through faith. And we live it out in union with Christ. How does Paul talk about salvation? It's not not a kind of a a creed that we sign off on or just a mental thing. It's not a one-time decision. It's being united to Christ, crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ. That's life in Christ. And it's nurtured as we abide in him, primarily through what we do every week, word and spirit and sacrament. And slowly, this abiding, this being actually forms us. Have any of you been to um, the Narrows in Zion National Park? Some of you, all of you have been to some sort of beautiful canyon, Grand Canyon maybe. As we abide in the word and spirit and sacraments, we are shaped slowly over time like water shapes rock. And then our doing actually flows with integrity from who we really are. And I think we're seeing today that so often the church gets itself in trouble when we're just anxiously doing stuff, And we haven't actually been formed in Christ's likeness, genuinely, so that our doing flows from who we really are. So we're using this language of receiving and then reorienting everything around Him. Slide four, please. To reorient everything around life in Christ. What does that look like? That is this series. What does it look like? It looks like robust worship, and it looks like true formation and healthy community and redemptive mission. Okay, second question, why rhythms? Eventually, the good bishop and I, we were conversing some more about different things, and he gave me some more language that I really appreciated. He said, okay, if people insist, my vision is to be the church, but more helpful in his mind was a discussion of values, because what does that actually look like practically? He said, I'm more values-driven than vision-driven. The invitation of this series is at least, hey, good to see you, Rosevears. Welcome down from the mountains. It's to be actually, at least for this year, invited into a rhythm of life, to be rhythm-driven as a body. What if the glue that binds us is more about a way of life together than a five-year plan? I thought about what our values are. Lots of them came to mind, but to start with, we are warmly relational. Many people experience us as a warm, relational body. We are robustly liturgical. And we are formation-oriented. And that's when, when Rob Paris planted this church that was near and dear to his heart, discipleship and formation, relational discipleship. And R.D. and Cindy can attest to this and has been along for the whole journey. <clears throat> but if we are warmly relational, robustly liturgical, and formation-oriented, what if the glue that binds us isn't a five-year plan so much as a relational, liturgical, formation-oriented rhythm of life together? What if our mission was to recover a way of being together? What if it were less of a destination and more of a lifestyle that we really took seriously together? Not a maintenance lifestyle, but a missional lifestyle anchored in rhythms that genuinely lead us to flourishing. A lifestyle saturated in robust worship and true formation and healthy community and redemptive mission. And what if these words actually became more than catchphrases or churchy words, but they actually became lived realities in your life, the cadence by which you walked into a healthier, more whole, and flourishing life. That's the invitation of the series. Now the graphic, if you can, yeah, there we go. The graphic kind of hints at the importance of rhythms in our life. How many of you have a liturgy around your morning cup of coffee? Or a cup of tea, if you're one of those, yeah. Bless you. I don't know how you function without the coffee, but... <laughs> <clears throat> the liturgy for me of the morning coffee, you know, complete with the sacrament of the unleashed aroma of the sacred bean. Um, the bubbling steam rising up from the coffee machine as it bubbles, the the trickle of the swirling coffee into the cup, and finally the blessed drink of new and unending life. Um, In in You Are What You Love, you can just read the introduction to that book, and the next three minutes is that. Uh, Jamie Smith argues that our loves are actually caught more than they are taught. He says our lives are full of liturgies, like a cup of coffee in the morning, But usually, the liturgies we're in are secular ones. He calls them secular liturgies. And they function to train our desires in a certain way because they covertly train us to love a certain vision of the good life. So, a classic example is the mall. Do they still do malls? Are those still around? Kind of. Maybe an outdated example, but after COVID. The mall. The mall is a religious site, he says. Not because it's theological, but because it's liturgical. Its spiritual significance and threat isn't found in its ideas or messages, but in its rituals. So look at its temple architecture. You don't see the parking lots to the side, but you see the sky above. It invites you into a transcendent space of worship. Um, There's mannequins that serve as icons of this unique spiritual life. They embody the good life for you. The good life is being fit and, and, and fashionable. So the mall doesn't actually care what you think. It isn't you're not going in there thinking about all this stuff, but it is very much interested in what you love. He summarizes this way Victoria's secret is that she's actually after your heart. So all these liturgies we're in, the mall or otherwise, they shape our loves. They give us an invitation to believe the good life is a certain way. That's how we grow in love. Love is a virtue in the end. And everyone from Aristotle to Aquinas will tell you, you don't just wake up one morning wanting virtue and then having it. Virtues are acquired through practice, through habits, through rhythms. So that's why rhythms. Habits and rhythms, you know, our life in the end is the sum total of the little decisions we make, the little rhythms of the day. And in the end, these rhythms will become like cork lifting us up or like lead causing us to sink. Worship is the first and most essential rhythm of your life because it shapes your love properly. It shapes your love to love what is ultimately lovable. And in the end, you are what you love because what your heart loves, your will will choose and your mind will justify. So discipleship, at the end of the day, is about falling in love with Jesus. All right. Robust liturgical worship. That's what we're talking about this morning. It actually invites you to take this seriously, meaning to take seriously that you have the power to actually shape what your heart loves. You can do it. You can. But it's not going to be by making a one-time decision, I want to worship God. It's actually by placing yourself in rhythms of life that train you to love what is most lovely. It will take rhythm. It will take habit. Starting with Sunday morning, yes, but extending throughout the week, maybe in music or in prayer and in word. It's so essential because you are immersed all week long in secular liturgies. You know, the liturgy of self-worship, or of sex worship, or of politician worship, absolutely thriving today, right now. Brand worship, celebrity worship, wealth worship, all week long, you're being shaped to worship things other than the Lord. You need at least a weekly reminder to worship Jesus. So over the next four weeks, that's the invitation to invite you into the power, take the power of rhythm seriously to choose worship and formation and community and mission to make these things more cherished than a cup of coffee in the morning. So that's the series. Now let's see what this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18 has to teach us about our first and most fundamental rhythm, robust worship. It's short, so I'm just going to read it one more time, and then we'll move through it pretty briefly. So beginning in Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus says to some who are confident in their own righteousness and they looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee who represents the epitome of righteousness and the other a tax collector who represents the epitome of unrighteousness. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Listen to all the eyes. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus gives the punchline. I tell you that this tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, the parable of this parable, it doesn't say even close to everything that could be said about worship, obviously. It's first and foremost about prayer here, but it does give us the key ingredient of worship as a jumping-off point, and that ingredient is humility. It's humility. A chocolate chip cookie without chocolate chips is not a chocolate chip cookie. Agreed? Worship without humility is not worship. You might be doing something if you're coming in here without humility, but you're not worshiping. Here are two men on the, you know, either end of the religious spectrum, the Pharisee, the tax collector, and they both go into the temple to pray, and Jesus hears the the prayer of the unrighteous, humble man, and doesn't hear the prayer of the righteous, prideful man. Why? Verse 9 offers the critical reason. He is warning people who trust in themselves, who exalt themselves, The prayer of the righteous man, it it grew like a weed out of a proud heart. A heart that believed it actually didn't need God anymore because it had all the strength and the morality and the righteousness it needed. Thank you very much. Notice he says I or implies I five times. I, 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 I. This is not a prayer. It is a moral resume said loud enough for everyone to hear and be impressed. God is a formality here. He's not interested in what God thinks. The the prayer of the unrighteous man, it also grows up from the heart. I think it's more of a flower than a weed. It's fertilized by this humility. Each prayer points to ultimately the location of the man's hope and the, the location of the man's confidence. The Pharisee's heart was exalting, worshiping his own religious performance. The tax collector was exalting, worshiping the mercy of God. And that's the basic question of worship. Who or what are you exalting? Who or what are you exalting? The first thing this parable teaches us about worship is abundantly obvious, but I think it's very hard for us today to accept. And it's this. Robust worship is not a performance, it is a posture. So you have these printouts I already told you about. Please take them home if you want. You can think about them throughout the week. It goes through and tells you a little bit about why we do everything we do in here. Why is our worship so robust? And the reason I wanted to highlight this first point, robust worship is not a performance, it is a posture is that we do worship robustly, but may we never mistake that for thinking. That we're li- may we never become the proud Pharisee who says, we do it this way, we do it right. This beautiful worship is somehow earning something from God. No, 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 no. From beginning to end, our liturgy is about inviting you into a rhythm that you need God. You desperately need God. So we gather every Sunday of the year for Liturgy of the Word and Table. Our practices are rooted in the ancient worship of the church. We sing, we pray, we confess, we eat, we're sent, we ring bells, we kneel, we cross ourselves, we pass the peace. Throughout the year, we, we gather for lament services or tazae services or, or prayer and worship services. Why? We worship robustly for the same reason that we, you know, weddings and funerals are ceremonious. Why? Because they're sacred. Emmanuel, God with us. Do we believe it or not? We take seriously the presence of God. He is present, forgiving us, feeding us. How couldn't we worship robustly? C.S. Lewis put it this way. He was really not, not having, in his day, there was a lot of novelty springing up, getting away from liturgical worship. He was not having that at all. Here's what he said. The modern habit of doing ceremonial things unceremoniously is no proof of humility. And a lot of times people think if we just get the ceremony out of it, it's more authentic, it's more humble. Lewis says that's actually the opposite of the case. The modern habit of doing ceremonial things unceremoniously is no proof of humility. Rather, it proves the offender's inability to forget himself in the right and his readiness to spoil for everyone else the proper pleasure of ritual. Still, there is a danger in liturgical worship, and it's this. It's that we let our rich, robust worship become a performance, like that of the Pharisee. May our worship flow as a footnote from the genuine awareness that we are at God's mercy. That the fundamental reason we gather here is to come and kneel and beat our breasts and say, have mercy upon us. And everything else we do is a footnote to that. This is why the first words of my mouth in the morning are not I'm so glad you're here. Fill out the Connect card. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Immediately pointing you to the Lord. And then right away, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known. It's about the heart. It's not about coming in, it's about... So that's why our rhythm of worship is anchored in the posture of the tax collector. We come in weekly to beat our breast and ask for mercy, not to offer him a performance. May It never become that for us here. Okay, maybe you're right, Jordan, but why? How how does this work? Why is worship essential to a vitalized spiritual life? I just want to offer you two quick reasons. First, it is not a matter of if you worship something, but what or who you worship. And second, emerson's law ralph waldo emerson put it this way we are what we are worshiping is what we are becoming what we are worshiping is what we are becoming so on the first point it's not a matter of if but what or who david foster wallace who isn't a christian he summarized it perfectly he said in the day-to-day trenches of adult life there's no such thing as atheism everybody worships the only choice we get is what do we worship and he says pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive so if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap into real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will, then you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud and always on the verge of being found out. Everybody worships. The only choice is what or who, and pretty much anything you worship aside from the Lord, who alone is worthy of worship, will eat you alive. Second, Emerson's law is that what we are worshiping, we are becoming. I just want to prove that with an example or, or illustrate it with an example. The lives of two men. On the one hand, the evolutionary scientist Charles Darwin. He once wrote in his autobiography this. He said, my chief enjoyment and sole employment throughout life has been scientific work. From this work, he added, I am never idle. It is the only thing which makes life endurable for me. Okay, what effect did this singular exaltation of scientific work, this worship of science have on the person that Darwin became? He goes on. Up to the age of 30, poetry gave me great pleasure. I took intense delight in Shakespeare. But now, for many years, I have found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. This loss is a loss of happiness. I have become a withered leaf for every subject except science. A withered leaf. What he worshipped, he became. This phrase kind of rang in my mind this morning as I drove to church and saw the leaves blowing across the road. I watched them scatter, powerless and dying, subject to the wind. Now consider Emerson's lot work in the life of another genius, Jonathan Edwards. At age 19, Jonathan Edwards wrote, Resolved to cast my soul on the Lord Christ, to trust him and confide in him and consecrate myself wholly to him. In other words, to make my life a rhythm of worship unto him. Later on in his life, he was reflecting about this decision. And he said, This decision brought an inexpressible purity and brightness and peacefulness and ravishments to the soul. In other words, it made my soul like a garden. Thaddeus Williams compares these two men in his book Reflect, and he concludes this. Two gifted men... One became a withered leaf and the other a garden. What was the difference? The object of their ultimate devotion shaped the very different kind of men these two became. So what is the object of your ultimate devotion? It isn't that God arbitrarily likes humility. He doesn't arbitrarily like us to humble ourselves and exalt him. It's not, it's not like our worship of him fuels some sort of narcissistic fire in God. Not at all. It is that the God who created you is the only one worthy of your worship, the only fitting recipient of your worship, and any other object of worship will bend you and dehumanize you and debase you and addict you and ultimately enslave you. The Pharisee, then, is a really good warning for church folk like like me, who are relatively wealthy and educated and powerful, people who like church and liturgy, you know, like us. Because, listen, it is possible to worship the wrong God, like science or sexuality or the self, good things, but not ultimate things. It's possible to worship the wrong God, but it is also possible to worship the true God the wrong way. That's what the Pharisees doing, by putting religious performance before humility of heart. One of the best ways to know that you are doing this, you're worshiping maybe the right God the wrong way, is to... You'll notice in your life you are increasingly, like the Pharisee, standing off and looking down at others with contempt. Do you have contempt in your life? You know, having exalted yourself, you become bent in on yourself. And a way to tell that that's happening is you're probably growing to be a less forgiving person, a more judgmental person, uh, more easily offended, more contemptuous towards those who don't perform to your standards. And you'll find in more and more of your relationships, there's a fracturing because you think of yourself as superior. It probably means you haven't quite come into touch with a God who you've come before and beat your breast and said, have mercy upon me. Because there, there's level ground between you and others, isn't there? So conversely, one of the best ways to know you're living in rhythms of truly worshiping the true God in humility is if you are becoming like him, more and more merciful, If you become what you worship, and you worship a merciful God, you will become more and more merciful, more tender, more kind, more long-suffering, more ready to forgive. Well, perhaps this is where, like me, you start to feel a little twinge of conviction. Certainly there are ways I recognize that I'm not becoming more kind all the time. Oh, man, okay, well, what do I do with that? It's discouraging. It's convicting. To which I say, exactly, if you find yourself there. Because Jesus came for the selfish and the sick, like you and me. So let that conviction come. Don't don't drive it away. Get honest. Let it come. And then let the conviction come that Jesus welcomes sinners. And that all you have to do is get on your knees and beat your breast and say, Have mercy upon me. I am not worshiping you humbly. I'm worshiping myself. I'm worshiping X, Y, Z. And then in that, when you're on your knees and you're confessing it and you meet God in his mercy, let that be this feast of your soul that feeds you and drives you to a more merciful and good and loving life, ultimately to a life of robust worship of him who is merciful. Because it's the mercy of God that leads you to repentance, ultimately. So it's easy to get stuck in the cycle of conviction, I better perform better. Conviction, I better perform better. That's, That's the Pharisee, right? Conviction, humble yourself. Conviction, humble yourself. Our entire liturgy is built around this simple idea. We desperately need God. We need his cleansing, his word, his body, his blood, his blessing, his sending. And like the liturgy of coffee in the morning, sometimes it's hard to tell for me these days, like, am I doing this because I love coffee or am I loving coffee because I'm doing this liturgy and I've kind of become a rhythm of my life. Worship can be like that. This liturgy can be like that. I know it is like that for some of you who have come from environments where you've been burnt or disillusioned by the church and maybe you're deconstructing, but you've come and started to fall in love with this rhythm of worship that's inviting you to come and kneel and beat your breast and say, have mercy upon me. It's wonderful. Everything we do here is a footnote to that posture of humility before God. And so we pray again Almighty God, to you all hearts are open and all desires are known, and from you no secrets are hid. You know the idols of our hearts. You know the ways we fail to worship you. You know the ways we're becoming more like the things we ought not to become like. Would you cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit? that we may learn to perfectly love you and worthily worship your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.